Good afternoon. It's Friday the 8th of October 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today is Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, many apologies for the technical problems today. It's already 16 past uh, one, so uh, we're late starting. Uh, but uh, let's get on with it uh, straight away and bring uh, Grant Shapps on screen. Here he is. Uh, and Patrick, he was on uh, various um, media this morning. And this was his message. 99% of COVID-19 deaths are in the unjabbed. This is what he is <laughs> claiming. Uh, so I uh, just want to take this apart a little bit. If Should we, we can. fact check it? We're, we're, well, we're, we're possibly not going to fact check it in that sense. But let's have a look at this. Uh, this is the latest ONS stats on deaths. Um, and uh, of course, the key part that we want to look at is this section on the far right hand uh, side. So let's zoom in on that a little bit. Uh, and what we can see is the dark blue sections or the, the blue sections are deaths involving uh, COVID-19. Uh, the green sort of uh, teal colored version is uh, uh, deaths which are not involving COVID-19. And the dark uh, blue, the, the, the darker blue boxes represent the five year average. And what we can see is that since, uh, well, when, uh, certainly June or July this year, uh, we're seeing excess mortality above the five-year average, but it's not COVID-19 related. Uh, it, it's certainly 50% uh, non-COVID-19 related. So the first question to ask, I think, Patrick, is, because I don't know the answer to this, but the first question we might ask um, is, uh, is Grant Shapps claiming 99% uh, on the basis that people who are perceived as having been jabbed are not being counted, they're not being assessed uh, for COVID, whereas uh, people that are unvaccinated are assumed to be COVID. Is that, is that possible? Very possible, very possible. So I would, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of problems with this. We'll get into quite a few of them today, but uh, it seems Mike, like the, uh, the narrative and the science is just going into complete chaos right now. They're tripping over their shoelaces uh, as, as they say in school. Uh, absolutely. So, so let's uh, have a look at this. And I have to say, Citizen Journalist's website from Northern Ireland has done a fantastic uh, expose here, really. So the headline is confirmed. The Matter Hospital, that's in Belfast, was not full of unvaccinated 20 to 30-year-olds on ventilators on the 22nd of July. Uh, and this comes, they, they decided to have a look at the, this because of a tweet from July. Uh, from Emma Keelan, who works in the Matter Hospital. Uh, uh, sorry, from originally from Leslie Ann McKeown, who works in the uh, in the Matter Hospital. Uh, but the the tweet from Emma Keelan said to the eighteen percent that haven't had the first COVID vaccine, the Matter is full with with young in twenties to thirties, critically unwell, unvaccinated COVID patients on ventilators who are now regretting their decision. Might be time for a rethink. A third wave is here, and you are now the most vulnerable. Um, but they weren't happy uh, about this particular tweet. They decided to look into it. But before they really started digging, uh, they sent a tweet back saying, have you an email address I can reach you at? I've heard back from a source that your information may not be correct and would like to cross-reference my info with you. Thanks. What do you think was the outcome of that, Patrick? I can't imagine. Uh, well, here, well, I think you can, because here we go. Oh. You're blocked. It is the absolute uh, re normal response whenever anybody is challenged on anything these days. You're blocked. Um, so they decided to put in a freedom of information request. Claire put in a freedom of information request asking a number of uh, questions. For example, uh, how many COVID-only hospital, uh, sorry, uh, inpatients did the Matter Hospital have? 
and so on. That was the first round of uh, freedom of information request uh, questions. And this was exactly the right thing to do. They followed up with more because as a result of this particular uh, comment or these particular questions, the suggestion was that, uh, well, while the results didn't support the initial claim that the Matter Hospital was full of uh, non-vaccinated young people, um, that that was because they were only looking at people with invasive ventilation. So there was subsequent questions went in. How many ventilated beds does the Matter Hospital have? Uh, and it can care for up to 60 patients requiring non-invasive ventilation. How many were occupied and how many were occupied on the 22nd of July? There were 12 patients on the tw 22nd of July requiring non-invasive uh, ventilation. Of those that were occupied, what were the ages of the patients? Were they all in their 20s or 30s, as per Dr. Keelan's claim? Uh, and the age range of patients was between 18 and 74 years, it said. We're unable to provide exact figures exempt from release under Section 40, brackets 2 of the FOI Act, as this would, could make patients personally identifiable. So the claim here is that they can't tell us uh, whether Dr. Keelan's claim was correct uh, because uh, of data protection. Why don't you just uh, publish the ages and not the names? This, which is exactly the point. Uh, so then can you confirm if the matter has non-invasive ventilators? Yes, it does. And if so, how many? 60 in total with access to an additional 20. And how many were available on the 22nd of July? The answer was 60. So anyway, what they eventually learned from these freedom of information requests was that the Matter Hospital can provide care for up to 60 patients requiring non-invasive ventilation. They also have access to 80 non-invasive ventilators. And that on the 22nd of July, there are only 12 of these units in use at the Matter. So the Matter was not full of uh, patients of any age. Uh, you know, so, but that didn't stop the Belfast Telegraph uh, with uh, headlines like this, around 80% of those under 60 being treated for COVID in Northern Ireland not vaccinated. So we continue with this narrative. So just to finish the, uh, the Citizen Journalist article, uh, this is really how they summarize it. What this does highlight is that there's a level of tolerance for disinformation and mistruths as long as that disinformation favors the orthodoxy. To our knowledge, we are the only media outlet that felt it important enough to fact check Emma's claims. Uh, the others, in true st stenography fashion, took her claims and reported them as fact, likely because they fitted with the overall narrative at the time, that the unvaccinated are the ones causing the problems in the health service. More often than not, when those making such claims are challenged, they're unable to defend said claims, so opt for blocking on social media and returning to the sanctuary of their echo chambers. So I'm just going to briefly ask once again, uh, what is the evidence that Grant Shapps has that demonstrates that 99% of COVID-19 deaths are in the unjabbed. Uh, is Grant Shapps going to address the issue of excess mortality, which is going on at the moment, and the fact that at around 50% of the excess mortality that we're seeing at the moment is not being classified as COVID-19? And is he going to justify or explain how much of that influences his 99% claim? I mean, do they have to justify uh, when they make these broad, uh, grandiose claims, they, I don't think they feel they have to because the media is not going to challenge them as you we've just right. demonstrated. I, I thought that was an excellent piece of work by that website and I got to applaud it. Uh, and uh, we need to see much, much more of this kind of thing, Patrick. So there's no more, there's no fact checking of anybody from uh, government or official sources or even mainstream media outlets themselves. Those are off limits for the quote fact checkers at AP, Reuters, 
et cetera, et cetera, The Guardian and so forth. But everything else uh, is fair game. So we'll get on to fact-checking uh, in another time because that's just something that's kind of appeared out of nowhere in the last couple of years, and it's been used to gaslight people. Meanwhile, there's actually no fact-checking going on, uh, not least of all in the mainstream media. This is absolutely correct. Now, uh, let's bring this tweet on screen. Um, so this tweet says, many of us are hearing a lot, uh, a lot anecdotally about people testing positive on multiple lateral flow tests, but then negative on multiple PCR tests. Turns out Public Health England are aware of this and looking into it. Here's an extract from an email a local PHE team sent in response to a query. And the email says, we do not have an explanation as yet, but we're collating all the data uh, including batch numbers and escalating it nationally. There are likely to be a number of factors at play. And of course, we recommend that s symptomatic people remain in isolation. Uh, we haven't experienced this before to such a degree and we're investigating. So they say that they haven't experienced it before to such a degree, but that implies that they have experienced it before. So they have seen this before. But, but, but how not, would they know? But not to the degree. Really well, they it? can only know through reports. So somebody has tested positive on a on a lateral flow test, and then, of course, as you know, Patrick, if you do test positive on a lateral flow test, uh, most employers require you then to follow that up mm. with a PCR test, and then there's a disparity in the results. Now, a lot of these, uh, a lot of this disparity, uh, from what I understand, is coming from the southwest of England. Uh, but anyway, that particular tweet resulted in uh, in in a uh, an iNews article, um, lateral flow test scores more report positive rapid COVID tests following, followed by negative PCRs uh, as mystery deepens. So what was their uh, take on it? Well, their, their take was they, they have no idea. So, I mean, they're giving two different explanations here that are anything but scientific. Um, you know, seriously, uh, faulty tests. Okay, faulty right. tests. What, what are they talking about? Are they talking about faulty lateral flow tests, or are they talking about faulty PCR tests? And the second one is a, is a real laugh, which is that, uh, well, maybe the new variant, the new Delta variant, doesn't get picked up by the PCR test. Uh, but they're not saying d the new Delta variant. They're saying a new variant. A new, and the, the implication exactly. is that something new has come along with it. It hasn't, despite the fact, despite the fact the government has, you know, 5 million variants of concern and then 20,000 variants under investigation, whatever the numbers are, I don't know what the numbers are off the top of my head, but but the, they have a, a li whole list of variants that they are following, but there seems to be a claim here, maybe it's a new one. So I, I could see them springing a new, a new species of variant on the public that uh, is exceptionally crafty, this new version of uh, Coroni, or it could be some other creature, an RSV creature, or maybe a flu, a new sort of super duper jazzed up GMO uh, flu strain. But the point is this, is uh, when there's a problem like this, uh, you have two choices of, of, of where the problem might be, Mike, the lateral flow test or the PCR test. Now, if you were the government, who, which one would you want to blame first? Lateral flow. Absolutely, because then you could scapegoat who? Uh, the Chinese. Because where are we getting our lateral flow test? China. From China, they cost 50p to make, and they're charging now 25 pounds for this piece of this plastic trinket right that that costs as much to make as a mars bar okay or let i'm, I'm exaggerating yes there, but you get the point so it, it, what what if there's a problem with the pcr test 
What, well, this is problematic. Because... What if people are changing the cycle counts up or down? And there, there is no standardization or consistency with the PCR test. There hasn't been from day one. And that's the provenance of the entire global pandemic. It is testing. And in this case, uh, extremely dodgy testing, because anybody can stand there, scientist, government official, academic or otherwise, stand there and tell us that the PCR test has any reliable standardization and is anything near a diagnostic test that could pick up whether a live virus is in a human being. I mean, you can't stand there and make that claim and, and, and expect not to be laughed at by people who are real scientists. So we have a bunch of pseudoscientists and politicians backing their crazy crackpot pseudoscience uh, at, at every turn. And this is the problem we've had from day one, Mike. Uh, now, there was, uh, you've identified the two main uh, features or the two main explanations for this, but there was one other, and that was an accusation that possibly people are gaming tests uh, to induce positive results. Um, and uh, so... How, well, how do you do that? And if you can do that, what does that say about even using any of these tests well, as any sort of a diagnostic? It's a total sham. It's an absolute sham, and this is proving it. Uh, 100%, but uh, orange juice does the trick with lateral flow, of course. Or, or swap, swap the dog or the cat, but that might not be a good idea because they might have COVID. So if you don't want a dog or a cat, we, we recommend that you buy a guinea pig uh, because guinea pigs, apparently, they're not big. They're not big carriers. They don't traffic uh, coronavirus like other. I aspects. thought we were the guinea pigs, but anyway, Oof. let's move Oof. on. Oof. Let's move on. Uh, now, Sajid Javid was speaking at the Tory party conference uh, on Wednesday uh, because uh, he's very keen, like Boris, to see us all build back better. That's right. So he gave a thunderous, uh, a thunderous address there, and he's got the logo behind him. Let's listen to what he has to say about the, the health service uh, in, in Britain. The state was needed in this pandemic more than any time in peacetime. But government shouldn't own all risks and responsibilities in life. We as citizens have to take some responsibility for our health too. We should always go first to the state. What kind of society would that be? Health and social care. It begins at home. It should be family first, then community then the state. So, what do you think? Well, I mean, in, in principle, you, you can sort of philosophically agree with some of that, but what he's basically saying is, as well, is that uh, you can't rely on the NHS mm. for health care. So w why would someone like Sanjay Javid, a Goldman Sachs or a Wall Street man of that type of species, uh, who's now in the government? Why would how would you translate a statement like that? Uh, well, he's rec he's certainly seems to be recognizing that the NHS is no longer fit for purpose. Um, so, what do you do under those circumstances? What do the Tories do under any circumstance? They Mike? sell it. They love carving things up and and selling them. So, I mean, this isn't the first time. This is this, this reared its ugly head. You remember back when the uh, leaked. Uh, memo, uh, labor yeah. memo, and the privatizations. Corbyn was warning that they were going to carve up the NHS, and they got attacked as fake news and so forth. Turned out to be actually true. This is being discussed. And then we have uh, stories like this, NHS sellout. This is from the Mirror not, not long ago. Tories signed largest privatization deal in, in history, worth 
180 million. I, I guarantee you that's just the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of carving it up, especially to the big American healthcare conglomerates that could buy up the NHS, the French Health Service, and the German Health Service in one fell swoop mm. if they wanted to. That's how much cash and backing they have from private equity firms and hedge funds and so forth. So, and so if you want a real good insight into you know, where this is all heading, uh, we recommend a good starter for this. If you're, if you're watching right now, uh, Drew McFadden made a fantastic independent documentary called The Great NHS Heist. It's still available on YouTube, who knows for how long, uh, but uh, hopefully you know, we wanna support good independent filmmaking like this. It's a great documentary, and this will give you a fantastic insight into basically how this carving up of the NHS will take is taking place, not will take place. It's actually already it's already started. Yes, it's already started. So we recommend you go and uh, check that documentary out. Fantastic. Uh, and I believe there's possibility of a second one. Well, yeah, certainly, there's no shortage of of material. Of, of material. This story is just getting uh, started. Um, okay, well, the news this morning then uh, is, uh, well, Jonathan Van Tam, uh, basically all the media covering this, get your flu jab, flu could kill 60,000 this year. He didn't really say yikes, uh, but that's uh, a summary of, of what he was saying, get your flu jab, because flu could kill 60,000 this year. Um, so uh, this has come uh, in parallel with the government releasing uh, a video all about the Blue jab. Where's JVT getting this 60,000 number, by the way? Well, come on to this in a, in a second. Because it's a really big number. Though. It is. It Very is. impressive number. But, but we'll come on to that in a second. So let's just have a look at a little bit of the uh, government's uh, wonderful promotional video to push this narrative. Vaccines. Never have they been talked about more. But how can they help keep us safe in the coming months? I've got together some of the country's leading medics to answer your vaccine questions and explain how vaccines work and how vital they are in helping to protect us. Last winter, we didn't see much flu circulating at all due to the COVID-19 restrictions that were implemented. However, health... So it, we didn't see flu circulating due to the uh, lockdown restrictions. Keep that in mind for a second. And the hand sanitizer, did you see they, yes. they made a point? And the social distancing, yes. that stopped the flu somehow. That stopped it, the flu. It, it brought it down to zero. It did, and we're going to show that in a second. But before we get to that, let's just answer Patrick's question for a second ago. How did they come up with this 60,000 figure? So we'll answer that first. And uh, this is the answer. Modeling suggests... Uh, this winter, influenza and RSV hospital admissions and deaths could be two times that of a normal year. So uh, how well has, did the modeling suggestions over COVID-19 work, Patrick? I don't know. What sort of modeling are we talking about? Are we talking about the Neil Ferguson variety or London Fashion Week? This, this is a very good question. I'm not e certain. Equally as credible. Exactly, yes. Equally as credible when it comes to the science. Uh, but the 60,000 narrative isn't new because uh, if we go back to July, uh, this was the Daily Mail, up to 60,000 people in England could die from flu this winter because so few people have immunity due to lockdowns reports, a warrant report commissioned by Patrick Valance. Now, we covered this at the time, but just to, if we just think about this headline for a second, because so few people have immunity due to lockdown. So the claim by the government is that their policy is resulting in 60, potentially 60,000 people dying, right? It's, it's admitting that. They yeah. are admitting that. So they've got their, their signals crossed there, don't they, on the narrative, right? They certainly seem to have the bit confused about exactly what the narrative is. But the question is, what has happened to flu uh, over the last two years? Uh, well, Scientific American here, this must have been from April, uh, is uh, 
saying that flu has disappeared worldwide dur during the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, then we've got uh, Gavi talking about the next pandemic uh, potentially being influenza and saying, however, that influenza type A is consistently circulating globally. The virus is particularly prevalent during winter due to decreased humidity and closer contact between hosts, allowing easier transmission. Well, that's normal. The government is now claiming that lockdown policy meant that that wasn't possible. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, Gavi claiming that influenza type A consistently circulating glo globally. But if we look at the, uh, this is an older report. I think this goes back to uh, April or so. Uh, weekly influenza admissions by influenza type in England. And as you can see, uh, the, there have been none, uh, or virtually none. I mean, we're talking weekly admissions, uh, less than, fewer than five for type B, well, one for type B mainly, but certainly fewer from, than five for type A influenza. Um, but we've shown this before, we'll show it again. This is what the World Health Organization attempted to tell us about the number of positive specimens for influenza by subtype uh, globally. Uh, this is global circulation of influenza viruses. And in week 13 of 2020, strangely enough, around the same time many countries introduced lockdown, influenza just switched off. It switched off inside a week to nothing, to zero. Uh, and uh, well, then let's have another look at uh, bringing this into 2021. So we, we're seeing through the, the winter into January and February of 2021. Also, zero or as near to zero as makes no difference. So the question then is, is this because influenza disappeared, uh, which Gavi says it didn't, or is this because influenza patients were being recategorized as something else? I think, I think the flu has been misgendered, Mike. It's been misgendered. It's been misgendered and, uh, and, and it's been COVID, it's cross-dressing as COVID-19. I mean, that's the only sort of scientific explanation that, that we could come up with on this. Yes. Now, the big concern for the government is, uh, as Gavi expresses here, uh, that influenza is widely perceived to be low risk by the majority of the public. So the narrative that's being presented is that uh, flu is now extremely dangerous because we have all been socially distancing and self-isolating and all this kind of stuff. And therefore, um, our immunity has just overnight disappeared. Uh, and we're all going to die of the flu this year as a result. Uh, of running around wild, like uh, wild heathens, uh, without being locked down. And God, those anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers as well. Right. They're even worse. So let's look at what Sajid Javid was saying a couple of months ago. Flu can be a serious illness, and we want to build a wall of protection by immunizing a record number of people because our immune systems can't cope with it, and we're all going to die. Uh, with the nation getting closer to normal life, we must learn to live with COVID-19 alongside other viruses. And we're offering the free flu jab to millions of people to help them help keep them safe this winter. Uh, the phenomenal scale of COVID-19 vaccination program is a clear demonstration of the positive impact vaccination can make. And I encourage all those eligible to get the flu jab uh, when called forward. So uh, that is pretty much the government narrative. Um, and uh, well, I don't really know what to uh, what to say there, Patrick, because uh, it's it's just well, maybe this tweet yeah. sum, sums it up. But sorry, uh, you... do, I'm just saying the government seems to regard the country as a giant pincushion now. Yes, uh, you just need to queue up for unlimited unlimited jabs. Um, but just uh, let's put this tweet back up on screen. Uh, this is from uh, May this year. Uh, Tony Heller saying the flu killed 50 million people in 2018, 20, uh, sorry, 1918, 
1919 with an average death of 28. By contrast, the average age of death from COVID-19, 79. I think it's actually somewhere around 83 is, is a more correct higher, figure yeah. uh, with multiple comorbidities. So whoever he was replying to here was correct. He says COVID-19 does not affect the body like flu. But nonetheless, uh, the question is, uh, has flu actually disappeared as the government seems to claim as a result of lockdown? Or has it been circulating as normal? Uh, but we've just dealt with it as normal. Um, and for those who are unfortunate enough to be old enough uh, to be suffering from respiratory diseases, which potentially are uh, life-threatening, that in many cases, flu has been recategorized as COVID-19. It's not only that, but when did, when did they ever test for the flu? I mean, the, the level of, quote, testing for, for the flu. There's been no mass it's testing regime. Never. Yes. And there never so it's usually based on uh, observations and how a patient presents symptoms and so forth. And this is how it's recorded, sort of the traditional way. So if they came up with a PCR test for influenza, God help us, what they would do to the population, what they would do to the country. I mean, for any of these, I mean, if they had a PCR test for, just think, uh, use your imagination, how bad this could get. And the problem, again, it comes back to this problem, it's all testing. But how can they make this claim, Mike, that because of lockdown, and because of all the, the hard uh, mitigation measures, and this is why the flu went down. Every single thing that they will take credit for will be because, because our policies worked. They'll, they'll put any correlation together and say it's because lockdown worked. The same with vaccines. It's because of the vaccines. So if last you say last summer, you know, how come there's more uh, COVID cases in September of 2021 than 2020, they'll say, oh, well, maybe because of, uh, well, the lockdown policy was different. Yeah. And then you reverse that and they'll say it's the vaccine. They didn't have the vaccines. So it, wh whichever way you cut it, they'll always want to justify and protect whatever the policy du jour is. There's absolutely zero science to any of it. They are literally just making it up as they go along and the media is just repeating it like uh, like 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 uh, it's a ventriloquist uh, act. Yes, basically. And what the media is not doing is challenging them because this, their narratives are not consistent. There's no consistency in the story. They'll tell you one thing today and they'll tell you something completely the opposite tomorrow. When it suits them, they change their their. So there's no consistency in it, and this is never challenged. Look, let's move on to uh, schools then and young people. Um, and uh, well, the Guardian this morning headlining. Uh, ministers criticised for haphazard COVID jab rollout for teenagers in England. Uh, and so the blame on the fact that the, the vaccine isn't being rolled out very rapidly in schools is being put on, uh, well, uh, the ministers, and in this case, uh, Zahawi, otherwise known as Anton LeVay. Now, is that true, though? Is that true? Because anecdotally, we are getting many reports from around the country uh, that in fact there has been quite a large pushback on schools from parents. Um, and uh, well, in fact, one such pushback has now made it into the mainstream press. Uh, and the mail here is saying, if any of these children are jabbed, we'll see you in court. Parents accuse school of GBH, that's grievous bodily harm, and threaten to sue if their teenagers are given COVID jabs without permission. Um, and so this is, they're talking about uh, Trotharis School in Cornwall. Uh, and they have been served with a cease and desist local no, sorry, legal notice by the pupils' parents. So the parents of 17 pupils are threatening to sue if, the child, if their children are given the jab without consent. And remember, this is on the basis of the Gillick competence, because even if, where a parent does not give consent for the jab, 
then as we've shown you on previous UK column news programs, the procedures that the schools are getting are saying, well then ask uh, the student and the pupil, and if they are considered to be competent, then that will override the parents' wishes. Um, now, it's important to say here that the, the, in the, uh, the article here in the mail does quote the parents and they say, we aren't anti-vax, we've had all our other job, uh, jabs, we just don't believe in giving our children vaccines on trial. And this is a very key point. They're highlighting once again that uh, these are still uh, not complete and the trials are not complete on these vaccinations. And they say that uh, that's why as a group, we've put the school on legal notice and basically said, if any of these children listed are jabbed, we'll see you on court. Um, so, but it doesn't end there. There's uh, uh, this whole issue of, of uh, vaccinations and children is leading to uh, what we might call discrimination. Uh, and so here is a tweet uh, from Camilla Turner. Council accused of creating a vaccine apartheid among school children, Suffolk County Council called completely hysterical after introducing different rules for vaccinated and unvaccinated children. And this links to a Telegraph article. Um, and so um, apparently, according to the Telegraph, Suffolk County Council has told parents that if their children have not been vaccinated, they have to stay at home for up to a week if one of their siblings tests positive for COVID. Well, we've just shown what how easy it is for that to happen because uh, we're getting disparity in the, uh, in the test results. Uh, meanwhile, children who've been vaccinated will be allowed to continue attending school as normal after a sibling test positive. So uh, as it's, sorry, it's one of the number of councils which has told children to isolate if a sibling test positive, even though it contradicts national guidance. And of course, this is another important part of it because what we're seeing is uh, national guidance, guidance and in inverted commas coming from central government, local governments, city governments uh, saying basically, forget it, we'll do our own thing. Um, and so this is a further breakdown in, in the rule of law effectively in this country because there's no law actually backing any of this up. Uh, but it's not just school children, it's also students. So here is the uh, student union at the University of Bath uh, and they have created a Freshers Week 21 wristband. So everybody that uh, arrives for Freshers Week uh, gets a, a, a wristband. But if you're not vaccinated, sorry, let's put that back on screen. If you're not vaccinated, um, you uh, you get a different coloured wristband and you get asked to go through different entrances and you're treated differently. Just give them a yellow wristband. Possibly. A yellow wristband with some um, nice pretty stars on it. Look at this graphic though, Mike. You know what I see up here? I see four bottles of beer and I see uh, five, six slices of pizza and God knows what else. So, you know, what are they really promoting here in terms of student health at the... At the universities, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a joke. Well, it? indeed, but these wristbands are particularly for use at the at the students' parties and the and the mm -hmm. freshers' balls and these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, other universities doing similar stuff. Uh, so Sheffield University students are required to present a COVID pass to enter freshers' events or union student union nights out, uh, and uh, and so on. So uh, there was a statement then from this organisation, Us for Them, which is a sort of parents uh, support group on this area. Uh, and they said this, the idea of making students uh, display their private medical information in such a public way is unacceptable. This echoes examples of discrimination we've seen in schools through the pandemic and raises concerns of a two-tier system uh, for students to access education. But it certainly echoes other historical events as well, I would have suggest. Yeah, it is without... unacceptable, but it's being normalized. It's being normalized first by government.
and then that's being basically waved through without any question by the uh, fanatics uh, in the mainstream media that uh, are pushing the drugs uh, on behalf of the transnational drug cartels, and they are acting as a drug cartel at the moment. Yes. And just to end this section on uh, vaccination and young people, I just wanted to mention this uh, campaign on crowd justice, uh, challenge temporary authorization of COVID-19 vaccines for children. Um, on behalf of uh, many extremely concerned parents, the COVID-19 Assembly is taking legal action to challenge the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency's decision to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine for use in 12 to 17-year-olds. Um, they say they're a UK-based non-profit organization working to end all coronavirus-related restrictions and prevent them happening again. Uh, and they've put together a case to help a number of concerned parents determined to prevent the unnecessary injection of children with COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and they've assembled a world-class group of experts, doctors, and scientists, including uh, Dr. Roger Hodkinson, uh, Dr. Robert Malone, uh, Tess Laurie, uh, Ross Jones, uh, amongst others. So um, people might want to, to have a closer look at that. What's going on is, Mike, is the, they're, they're saying that it, because it's approved by the regulator, be that the MHRA, be that the FDA, that somehow now it's fully legitimate. Yes. And what, what it is, is it's just another version of an emergency use authorization. They're still in the background doing pretending masquerading feigning to do clinical trials. Uh, meanwhile, they're using the public as their uh, trial, uh, as, as guinea pigs, as yes. we said before. So th th that's all this is, is basically window dressing. Big Pharma have been basically given this kind of new sort of status of approval. Uh, BioNTech was the first one. Uh, but the reality is it's just another version of the emergency use authorization. The fraud continues. It does. Now, what's been going on uh, in Romania? Romania, well, the, it, it, a lot of people will, won't, won't have noticed this is uh, back in the eastern front, the eastern front of the European Union there, and the government uh, was basically brought down uh, after a vote of no confidence, and uh, even coalition members turned against uh, their sort of uh, betters on this, so that was the end of it. And it. It left a lot of people asking the question, why this sudden, and supposedly it's over a bunch of other domestic issues, mm. but one thing is very interesting is that Romania... Uh, hasn't actually been dancing to the uh, the tune of the pandemic with very much enthusiasm, not compared to other uh, European countries. So we're, right. we're asking, we're, we're suspecting, does this have anything to do with their sort of more relaxed uh, uh, approach to the pandemic and to vaccines and vaccine passports? Has the government uh, basically been taken out mm. here suddenly on this. Now, a lot of people will say it's for other issues, and that might very well be the case. But let's just look at some of the record here for a country like Romania. We'll go to the Financial Times here and look at this. You'll see quite a few reports like this, by the way. Skepticism and fraud hamper COVID-19 vaccine take-up rates in, guess who, Romania and Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. uh, it's near neighbor there in the same region of the European Union. So fraud is adding to the official frustration in Romania over take-up rates. So with instances of doctors allowing people to uh, go without jabs while still issuing them the certificates to help make it easier for them to work and travel. Isn't that interesting? So they've got sort of uh, doctors there uh, who are, they, they're accusing of basically giving them their certificate, their vaccine record without having taken 
the vaccine itself. Yes. So, I mean, we, we, we speculated about this months ago that uh, especially in, in Eastern Europe, where there's um, maybe say a little less of a co corporate monoculture uh, than in Western Europe, mm. uh, and people still have their faculties and they haven't completely uh, zapped uh, the frontal lobes of their brain, so they actually know what's going on in their environment, unlike Western Europe, where the evolutionary process has somehow reversed. Um, ask Richard Dawkins about that next time you see him uh, at a Q&A. Uh, but let's just look at this a little bit further here. So a lot of people have postponed their vaccines, um, their vaccinations until now. This is the health minister here, uh, Iona Mihaila. And uh, we understand their concerns and it's their right to research about all the vaccines and make an informed decision. But now it's time to make this decision as, and this is the interesting part here, Mike, uh, the risk of getting infected will surge. So what is she implying here? We'll get, we're seeing this claim all over the place, especially from various uh, public health people, the Fauci's of the world, our own government ministers in the UK and in the US. The government's general claim here, Mike, is with the, the vaccine, or saying, oh, sorry, this is wrong, without the vaccine, it should be. So let's just look at the uh, COVID-19 uh, tracker here. And let's just check it. This is the global 6.4 billion doses given. Bill Gates is very happy about that number. We would like to get it a lot higher. Uh, and so we're just going to go down. We're looking for Romania, Mike, and Bulgaria. And we just have to keep going down, down, down further past uh, Guyana, past India, past Russia, Indonesia. And there, there's Romania there. You can see. Uh, right there, about 28% are, quote, fully vaccinated persons. That's the term we're using now. That, that doesn't sound impersonal and Orwellian. I don't know what does. But where's Bulgaria? Let's just go down a little bit further. Where are they? They're lost down here somewhere. Uh, Zimbabwe, Bangladesh, there they are. 19% are, quote, fully vaccinated persons. So um, well, they must be dropping like flies in that country, no? Well, yeah, this is another thing. Well, you, you think so. Um, so with that low vaccination rate in Bulgaria, you'd think that the cases and the deaths are high, but they're not actually. They're actually really, really low. So let's just take a look at that. Romania, second to the last in the EU at 28% fully vaccinated persons or units, as the pharmaceutical company likes to call them. And then Bulgaria, 18% fully vaccinated persons or units, as uh, Big Pharma like to call them. So that's the story in Europe. So how can you implement a vaccine passport system uh, unless you have a high uptake mm. in vaccines? You can see where this is going with from Brussels to the UK, to the US, to Canada, to Australia. The, the, they, it, it, it's, the vaccine passport, Mike, is even more important to government, to these technocrats than the vaccination itself in some respects, because you can't have the second one without the first. I mean, uh, Patrick, when we go right back to the beginning of this, when uh, lockdown was the major issue, um, and we said at the time, uh, you know, the only statistic that can't be fiddled here is, is all-cause mortality. This is the only one. You can categorize people in various categories, and you can claim that somebody's a COVID-19 death, but the only figure that can't really be uh, messed about with is all-cause mortality. So. If uh, we compare countries that went into full lockdown in 2020 against countries that didn't go into full lockdown or didn't go into any lockdown in 2020, we, if the government narrative was true, we would expect to see 
much higher mortality, much higher excess mortality, doesn't matter the cause, excess mortality in the countries that didn't go into lockdown, if the lockdown policy made a difference. Like Sweden, for instance, right? But other countries yeah. as well. Did we see that? No, we didn't, right? And here we are uh, at months since we've got countries with high uptake on fully vaccinated, on fully vaccinated according to the government uh, narrative, and we compare the countries with high uptake with countries with no or low uptake. And again, if the vaccine is doing anything, we expect to see fewer deaths in the vaccinated countries than in the unvaccinated countries. We expect to see high mortality in those countries, and we don't see it. What do we see? The opposite, actually. Yes. In many cases. Indeed. So what are we saying? First of all, we're saying that there is no pandemic. And second of all, we're saying that the vaccine is making no difference or is having a negative impact on the situation. So really, when somebody's coming to fact check the situation about the veracity the government claims about vaccination and so on, we need to have an explanation as to why that is. That seems to me to be the, the, a good place to go. Right? And another clue is if you go to the WHO, they have COVID dashboards, interactive uh, graphical dashboards now on the, on the WHO's website, the World Health Organization, for every single country. Okay, And they keep a running total of COVID deaths and cases from January 1st, 2020. Right. This is the first epidemic in global history uh, where they keep the taxi meter running year on end to generate even bigger and bigger and bigger numbers. And so that's a clue. Why would they do something like that unless this was really a propaganda exercise? And it is a propaganda exercise from the WHO level. And of course, they're setting the agenda and the pace in terms of what's official in the sort of world of public health and governments are just riffing off that. So mm-hmm. that they're trying a little bit too hard. They're over-egging the, uh, the, the bread pudding, uh, as it were. They're trying really hard, and it's looking ridiculous. Wait till they get to the global, uh, uh, what's it, the 5 million, the 6 million, the 10 million mark. And they'll have these massive proselytization exercises yes. by, by politicians. It's just ridiculous. People need to basically start calling it out as the absolute ridiculous charade that it is and the media starts calling needs to start calling it out yeah it's ridiculous why are they keeping running totals year on end and and not by season or by year as is the case with every single other uh uh, influenza year you know it's like ridiculous they're trying to push the covid brand trying to push the, the 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 impression that there's a global pandemic going when there's not so Okay, well, let's come on to uh, this then. And the Metro reporting Tory MP reveals grim reality of living on just £82,000 as he asks for a pay rise. Who's yeah, it's, well, I think... The wonderful lot. Peter Bottomley, is it? It could, Yeah, it is. I mean, I think we, we needed a compassionate story, Mike, here, and we really need to open our hearts to the plight of these Tory MPs. I mean, Mike, how can you survive on eighty-two grand a year? I mean, that's probably... That's really slim. That's, you're talking about shopping at Iceland uh, Monday to Friday, and then who knows, food bank on the weekends. Here's poor Peter Bottomley here, and he's basically complaining, Mike. He's saying, why don't we get paid the same as GPs? GPs are now averaging 100 grand a year. And he says, we are the GPs. I'm quoting him pretty closely. We are the GPs of politics. We're the general practitioners of politics. Therefore, we deserve to be paid at least at least. He says GPs really should be getting 112. So he's really advocating for uh, a massive pay rise there. 
for the uh, average member of it's, parliament. It's quite an accurate thing for him to say that the, that they are the GPs of the politics world because you can't get to see your GP, you can't get to see your MP either. It's a fair comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The surgery is closed. Yeah, right. Actually, that is a fair comment. Yeah. Well done, Peter. You've you've got something right uh, uh, in all that. So anyway, um, that so we're supposed to be concerned about that. But I always also pay attention. Everybody watching, don't just look at the story. Look on the margins yes. because you'll see where the real propaganda is. Look over on the right-hand side. What else must you read? Look at that. I like the one in the middle. That's interesting. We don't want to see Boris again. We'll have him later. And then a gorilla dies in the arms of rangers. Okay, that's an interesting story. But look at this one in the middle. Why young people should get the COVID-19 vaccine. Is this a news story? No. No, it's not. It's an ad feature, yes. isn't it? Um, who is paying for this ad? That's an interesting question. We uh, we haven't looked into that yet. You might be able to tell us if you're watching. Vac now, here's the statement underneath. Mike. Vaccine Vaccinating young people means they're far less likely to catch serious COVID-19, su suffer from illness, or pass it on to others. So they're implying here in this government ad that the vaccine makes you immune to uh, coronavirus. So, or, that provides any immunity, and, and it actually doesn't. Mm. They're claiming that it reduces symptoms, which itself is a spurious claim, which was done in this tiny little clinical study uh, groups uh, in, with some of these pharmaceutical companies or larger uh, study groups using PCR tests as the only uh, uh, way of observing whether they think someone had COVID-19 or not. Um, are lots of young people suffering from serious illness from COVID-19? I don't know. It doesn't seem well. If it, it, there's a lot of propaganda circulating that, that's claiming that they are, but is that just a motive propaganda? We're going to say yes, it absolutely is. And so they're just ramping this up. This is about selling product mm. on one hand, but then it's about you need to get everyone vaccinated. Otherwise, you can't have a vaccine passport system and then have all the young people not using it. Mm. So this is really a twofold or two pronged uh, uh, attack on the public, which is either through pharmaceutical intervention and then through uh, massive biosurveillance mm. applications. The two go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. There's no point to push the first unless the second, because the second is the real payoff. Mm. Because with the, the payoff on the vaccine passport for the, for the government, for central banks, for big finance, is that they'll, they'll have that hook to roll out a central bank digital currency. Yeah. They will have that hook, the government, for social credit, uh, a la Chinese style social credit scoring system. Okay, so you need both. This is a twofold exercise. People need to understand that. Um, and that brings us uh, to Scientific American. Well, this is just more of, on, on the previous mic. The vaccinations that reduce symptoms but do not block uh, infections. So I mean, there's so many different articles that we can find science-wise that just refute this common claim that uh, people who aren't vaccinated are going to uh, spread COVID more to others or something like this, or that people who are vaccinated are protected. You're not protected from, from getting it or spreading it according to the manufacturers and according to the science like here uh, in this article. Uh, I believe this is Nature Magazine here. So let's look at this. This is the New York Times, Mike. Get more confusion. Look at this. A new vaccine strategy for children. Just one dose for now. Myocarditis, they're worried about this. And they're saying, well, maybe officials are, they're trying out a single dose for children, Mike. Trying out a single dose. Where's the science? 
We thought this has been tested. The science was settled. Now they're changing their mind. They're saying, well, not two doses, maybe, maybe one dose. Let's just change the doses. Maybe we'll mess about a little bit and see which one works. Yes, Some people it. might die in the meantime, but sure that doesn't matter. We've got to find out what the, what the right answer no, is. It's very rare, Mark Hydeis. They keep saying it's rare and it's rare. And we keep seeing more reports and they keep popping up on the VAERS database, yellow card on the Eurydra Vigilance database. If it's so rare, why do, you, why do we keep seeing more and more reports? Why are there more and more studies? Why are the authorities becoming more and more worried about it if it's so rare? That is pure propaganda. When you see this rare occurrence mm -hmm. of X, okay, it's not so rare. They have shut down uh, vaccine rollouts in the past, like the H1N1 flu vaccine, for 28 deaths in the United States nationally, recorded deaths. Okay, who knows how many injuries and deaths there were? But you know, Guillain-Barré syndrome, a few dozen deaths. They shut, they pulled the product from the market, and they said that's the end of it. We're looking at thousands. Yes. Thousands. If you add up, listen, if you add up the VAERS adverse reactions and deaths, and you add it to the UK yellow card adverse reactions and deaths, and you add it to UDRA vigilance, European adverse reactions and deaths, you add those aggregate, okay, 10, over 10,000 easily deaths, okay, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of serious adverse reactions. Is, is, is that nothing? Are we supposed to just turn our back and say, that's nothing, that's rare? They've, they've pulled countless pharmaceutical products for a, a, a fraction of it, less than a fraction of it. Mm -hmm. the, what we're seeing now is this incredible gaslighting operation that's going on uh, between the government media complex and the pharmaceutical industry and the public. And I'm telling you, this is, it's, it's going to get worse. Those numbers are not going down, ladies and gentlemen. If they're that high now, with the amount of doses that we showed you, 6.4 billion globally, those numbers are going to go up. Okay? And what, what, is the, uh, what is the potential risk uh, in mixing flu vaccination and COVID-19 vaccination? This is unprecedented. Uh, we have no idea. What's the government's answer to that is, hey, let's give it a, let's let's give give it a, it a whirl. Try. Let's have a go. We can AstraZeneca and the flu and uh, take a, a Pfizer there. I guess a couple yes. of Pfizer's in there. Now, yeah. look, uh, part and parcel of uh, everything that's going on at the moment is a developing narrative that uh, anybody that is uh, criticizing the government or or, accusing, uh, or challenging their narrative is uh, increasingly right wing. They're becoming right wing extremists. We're very, very dangerous people. Uh, and we've got to be everybody's got to be scared of all these anti lockdown, anti vax protesters. And if you remember on Wednesday, following the uh, the Senate vote in Wales on vaccine passports. Uh, this was a typical tweet. We showed a surreal evening in the Senate. Uh, and to compound matters, uh, we can't get out of the building at the moment because of the protests outside. So we've, you know, the message is very clear here. And this was reported in the mainstream press and, uh, and so on. And uh, uh, the message is very clear. These dangerous uh, protests outside meant that uh, nobody could leave the building. Uh, you would, what do you think was out there? People with guns? I, uh, ISIS brigade. ISIS brigade. Toyota pickup trucks and, you know. Okay, so I'm going to say thank you very much to Richard D. Hall for sending me this little bit of uh, video here. But, you know, uh, there were varying numbers of people during the day on uh, and in the really evening. Really radical, stop yeah, and think. Yeah, totally radical. Uh, you know, there were, there were different numbers of people during the day and in the evening and so on. But w the, the common factor here was that they were all polite they were all very calm i don't know mike those look like vicious vicious battle hardened terrorists 
I'm not sure. There could be. You don't know, Mike. You could be. The government. And anyway, as life. you can see, I completely understand why why members of the uh, of the Welsh Parliament were unwilling to leave the building to run that gauntlet. It was. It I mean, was, look uh, at that baby pram. Look at that baby pram. You, someone could swing that and attack uh, a member of the Welsh Parliament. You don't know how dangerous these people are, Mike. If yes. A government like us, you you would know what the risks are, but you don't, do you? You just don't play them. Now, look, let's come on to the issue of immunity, because, of course, with uh, the only way to be immune uh, these days is to be vaccinated. Uh, natural immunity doesn't exist. Um, it's a except conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy theory. But even the inventor of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine at some point has suggested that natural immunity exists. So if you, this is the famous quote from her. It is possible we're underestimating natural or already acquired immunity to this virus. Uh, there's certainly evidence that people have not developed antibodies, but have developed a T cell response. Oof. And we many times we have shown scientific uh, studies which show that uh, there is a T cell response to this uh, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, uh, because of a recognition uh, from similar coronaviruses that are already circulating. Uh, and also from Oxford University, Sir John Bell saying there's probably a background T cell immunity in people before they see the coronavirus. Not probably, um, definitely. So uh, anyway, that that uh, that is was supposed to lead into a section from you, but we seem to have things in the wrong order. So we'll we'll come up. We'll come back to that in one second. But just before we we do come back to that, uh, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That'd be very much appreciated. Also, do share our material on the various platforms. And once again, thank you very much to everybody that uh, uh, has uh, taken up the. Uh, Offer to get a, a UK column hoodie. That's very much appreciated. Uh, some of them are being shipped already, uh, and uh, we'll do our best to get them out as quickly as possible. And then on Sunday, Patrick, uh, propaganda and the nine and nine eleven global war on terror symposium. That's right. This is a virtual symposium conference that's going on. It'll be uh, on our live stream. So go to ukcolumn.org forward slash live. Yes, and uh, you'll be able to see this event it's starting at one p.m. UK time. The lineup of speakers is uh, fantastic. Uh, the presentations are going to be very uh, impactful, and the information and, and what they're putting forward there is going to be great. 20th, 20 years anniversary of September 11th, and they're going to basically be tying that to the current COVID-19. So from the war on terror uh, to the uh, war on uh, bioterror, or yes. however you want to call it, whatever it's going to turn out to be. So we encourage people to tune in for that on Sunday. Uh, now, as uh, everybody will be aware, the price of uh, gas and oil is going through the roof, uh, and this is having an impact at the petrol pumps, but it's also having an impact on uh, on people's uh, energy bills at home. Now, there's a limitation on this on the impact of that as a result of the government would say the fact that they put a price cap on uh, on on oil and gas for uh, for uh, con consumers. Uh, but who's to blame for all this, Patrick? This is the question. Uh, it's not. We need a scapegoat. We do need a scapegoat. And we've got one. We've got one. It is, in fact, Vladimir Putin. Here he is. Uh, here comes your £2,000 energy bill, says the uh, Daily Mail. Uh, Putin's £2,000 bill for you. So it's coming direct from Vlad. It's not coming from British Gas or from EDF or from, well, there are lots of companies it's not coming from because they've gone out of business in the last couple of weeks. But nonetheless, it's not coming from any energy companies. It's coming for you from, from the Kremlin directly. They're claiming that what Russia's hold, holding Britain over a barrel. Yes, 
This uh, is the attempted claim here. How? Uh, and the Express uh, is echoing this. Uh, carring EU fears Putin will turn off the gas, says expert. And this is the reason, because Putin is going to turn off the gas. But Patrick, the has gas. the gas been turned on? No, it hasn't. As we've reported before, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, is being held up by guess who? The EU? By Brussels, by Ursula von der Leyen and her uh, contingent there in Brussels of technocrats. Uh, and they're doing that at the behest of the United States uh, and the UK as well, because they don't want to see that gas flow, that cheap, plentiful Russian gas flowing into Germany and Northern Europe. That would be an absolute nightmare uh, for the uh, the heads of NATO there. Uh, they don't like that at all. No, no. Uh, because they don't want to get anything from Russia that's going to basically be useful and uh, promote trade uh, between the two countries. Not only that, is, but... Uh, Vladimir Putin intervened to make sure that the gas is flowing via the Ukraine, who were that that was being held up by the by the U.S. after the Maidan coup. They, the whole point of the coup that was backed by uh, Britain and the U.S. in Kiev was to stop things like Russian gas uh, transiting through uh, the Ukraine uh, into Europe. Okay, and now Putin this week intervened. We don't have that story to hand. Uh, but it, you can look at this on the news wires. He intervened basically to make sure that that is going to be flowing through. And obviously there's all sorts of problems financially uh, in between that. Nonetheless, uh, Russia sees the importance of making sure that gas supplies make it to Europe. So what, what, what sort of news reporting is this from the mainstream media? Well, Patrick, uh, guess how many times, uh, while they were accusing Putin of being responsible for it, guess how many times the words financial speculation came into the articles? I don't know. Well, zero, of yeah, course. It would have to be zero. Zero, yes. Because that has nothing to do with the skyrocketing. Nothing prices, at all. The blowing up of the future markets by our sort of free-floating wholesale energy market that's uh, brought to you by the good folks at Enron. So yes. that was one of their great legacies, Mike. It for, certainly is. For the UK and Europe. Well done. But uh, what, what else is going on? Because COP26, uh, well, this article suggesting that it's in a bit of trouble as a result of this. this. Now, look at the media coverage here. This is the Washington Post, Mike. They are Green New Deal, climate change, uh, total uh, evan through. evangelists. Yes. Okay. Now, look at this. Global energy crisis cast shadow doubt on the COP26. And so I can't believe I was reading this this morning. Uh, in, the, in the Washington Post. Look at this. Problems ahead of COP26, a surging cost for gas and shortages of coal have caused record spikes in the price of electricity, up to triple from the previous year in, in some countries uh, in Europe. In the UK, is also incredibly high, record levels, right? So, and this goes further. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The prospect of a cold winter with skyrocketing heating bills may weigh far more heavy on most people's minds than the distant, abstracted calculations that guide climate action. Can you believe you're reading this in the Washington Post? That's a big deal. Hmm. Okay, so they're, they're, this is a major climate um, uh, advocate. advocate here who basically saying the radical idea that maybe people freezing to death this winter and people going into fuel poverty, millions of people, that might be more important than the computer model calculations of what might happen to the Earth's temperature in 200 years. And then what Greta Thunberg is screaming and yelling about. I mean, I can't believe I'm reading this. Is this a sobering moment? Are we going to get some reality, finally? Is it, does it take this disaster, this explosion uh, in the price of energy, 
in order to get people to wake up? I don't know. I, there's two sides to this. I don't know how you feel about this, but this is great. The Great Reset would definitely want to see uh, fossil fuels becoming so expensive, price, yes. so expensive yes. and people would end up blaming it on the, the price of coal and we need cheap green energy. Okay, I can see that. But it, it could be also, this could be backfiring yes. at the same time. Who knows? But look at this. This is, uh, this is a, a conservative MP in the UK, uh, Bim uh, Afalami, and this is what he's saying here. He's also admitting it, but in a very strange way, in a kind of a Boris way. We need to recognize that decarbonization will only work uh, when you've much more fully decarbonized. That's a pretty uh, profound statement there. Thank you very much from this MP. Uh, of course it would. <laughs> So this shows being in, in the transition phase, you can't have a half in, half out approach. This leaves you vulnerable in this way. So he's right on the second part. You can't be half in, half out uh, on this. And this is the problem. You need, actually, no, I'm going to disagree with that, Mike. You're going to disagree with yourself. That's just an insane statement by this <laughs> MP. You need to be half in, half out, or you need to be three quarters in, three quarters in and a quarter out. You need, as we said in previous programs, a basket of energy sources. You need gas, you need oil, you need coal. You also need wind and you can have solar and hydro. Have I left anything out? Nuclear. Nuclear, of course, nuclear. So <laughs> nuclear being in the top three, probably. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you need a basket of fuel. So th this goes to show you that the, the political class has no idea what they're doing with this. They've been running with this Build Back Better, Green New Deal, just complete radical, very much driven by radical left-wing ideologues, okay? The, climate, the whole climate change movement is. And it's now you're seeing the result of it. It's a complete debacle. It's a disaster. And if you let them keep going with this, it will get worse. So we need to demand accountability from the media. So here's on the European level, so now, here, what did we, what did we predict two weeks ago? Bailouts. Yes. Here we go. As we said, EU recommends relief funds for consumers hit by energy costs. Now, this is on the consumer side. That's basically a bailout for the consumer. Next is a bailout for the industry. Okay, but this this idea of a bailout for consumers hit by energy costs this is extremely dangerous because that we are therefore more reliant on government in order to survive, and government may at some future point put some kind of restriction on who gets such a bailout. Maybe you only get a bailout if you've been vaccinated. Or your social credit score is high, or you're not going above your usage limit for gas and electric in the coldest winter on record, which we're expecting yeah. this winter will be one of the coldest winters on record, longest as well. Now, Hungarian uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban's pushing back. So he's blaming the Green New Deal uh, policies for fighting, quote, climate change, claiming to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels to make the trading block a carbon neutral uh, trading block by 2050. I mean, this, so this is the source of the problem. Nice to see Viktor Orban has uh, identified this. He's saying the reason why prices are up is the fault of the commission. So you have to change some regulations, otherwise everyone will suffer. He's calling the Green New Deal indirect taxation on home and car owners. Uh, not, not just them, it's also on consumers as well. Mm. So they're being hit. All, all inflation is, is, a, is a stealth tax. And you're seeing incredible amount of inflation in gas and electric. Mm. So, but uh, f further on this, this is again, Foreign Policy Magazine. 
is Europe's energy crisis a preview of America's? So Biden's basically, um, and, and Europe are basically on the same page. The current European Commission has turned energy policy into a mere subset of climate policy with little attention paid to uh, supply, security, or energy affordability. And here's the kicker. While major news, uh, news sources of natural gas have been found in proximity of Europe, in the Eastern Mediterranean, they're not going to say Russia here because this is the written by a member of the faculty of the uh, postgraduate Naval College in America. Nonetheless, for example, European leaders have bowed to activist pressure and not seriously pursued any of these available sources like Russia. I put that in there myself at the end. So they're not mentioning Russia in this per se or not putting a big emphasis on it. But this is the important part, bowed to activist pressure. This is a, uh, a serious person here writing for foreign policy, and they're, they're saying that the activists are the problem, that politicians have bowed to the activists, and that is going to make some people not very happy, Mike. And, uh, of course, Greta being the person is really not, not going to like hearing that, so she's just going to say blah, blah, blah. And so energy and fuel crisis, so this is the big question here. So we have two players two potential scapegoats here. So who is to blame? This is the big question, Mike. Who is to blame? Are you going to blame Putin for the energy crisis or is Greta to blame? Well, we've just laid out to you a pretty convincing case. So I think the answer to that, at least the UK column uh, is going to say that Greta is to blame. So she is the reason why we're having this crisis. Oh, no, we're not gonna blame it all on Greta, but she is the front person. She is the front person. She's been made the Joan of Arc mm. of the climate change movement, of the Green New Deal movement. They put her out front, her parents and all the people from Greenpeace and WWF and the World Economic Forum are using her as their little 18-year-old battering ram. They've been using her now for three years, and now we can see where this has gone. It's a total failure. Mm. It's a total disaster. So I, I predict that Greta will exit the stage uh, for a while after COP26. I think she's, she'll, she will have, she, at the rate she's going, she's going to snap and have a nervous breakdown because she's already publicly disavowed the Build Back Better slogan. Mm. She's basically admonished it in public. And imagine her handlers when she said that. They probably just were cringing, you know, like, what do we do? We have to, they're going to do something. Anyway, they're going to move Greta off the main stage for a while. Maybe she'll come back later. So this is the question, build back better. So, and this is the scenes we get at the conservative Congress. So, so why there's an energy absolute collapse in, in, in confidence in the energy market and the way the government should be managing it. I mean, if they can't stop the fuel, gas and, and, and electricity prices from going, you know, a thousand percent jumps, I mean, what good is government? What are all the economic geniuses and boffins good for anyway? So, so build back better. And we have to say, who, who is Boris saluting to? Who is he saluting to? When you see the Canadian government, the Australian government, the US government, the European governments all using the term build back better, different countries, different leaders, all using the same slogan, that is a unified political message. So who is he saluting to? Close. He's, he, he is, this is coming from Herr Schwab. This is coming from Davos, okay? That's, so any government official, any leader who is saying build back better, they're signaling 
to an external power. They're taking orders from an external power that is not a song to, to be for different countries to be using identical political slogans is not a sign of sovereignty. Mm. It's not a sign of nationalist nationalism or sovereignty. It's a sign of globalism. Okay. And it should be the last, I mean, someone would argue saying, well, Brexit, how they sold Brexit was all about independence. And, and even the left were saying, oh, it's nationalism run riot. And what are we seeing now? Well, we're, we're seeing, seeing hashtag global Britain. We're seeing globalism, more yes. globalist policies, taking slogans from Davos, mm -hmm. from Switzerland. I mean, so I think there's, uh, people need to be like paying attention to mm -hmm. this. This is a problem. Yeah, okay, right. Look, let's uh, come on to the issue of inflation because obviously the energy crisis is feeding into uh, prices in supermarkets and so on. And the reason for that is because while there's a price cap on domestic energy supply, in the UK at least, there is no similar pr price cap for businesses. So anybody that's growing anything or producing anything or making anything or selling anything, uh, they're paying the full whack. Uh, and uh, so you know, what is the forecast for inflation? Well, back in uh, July, here's Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, his forecast at that time was that uh, they do expect, or they did expect inflation to pick up in the next month or so, really. Uh, it's been under 1% for my entire life as time as government, he sa uh, governor, he says. Uh, every opportunity I've had to write a letter to the chancellor to explain why I've had to take. This is because if inflation is outside the 2% range, uh, he has to write and tell the chancellor what a naughty boy he's been because he's supposed to be managing inflation. Uh, and uh, so he went on to say, we don't see uh, that sort of, in a sense, momentum continuing forward at that pace at all. He was talking about the, the rise in inflation. So the, the rise in inflation, the momentum is not going to continue. It's a short-term thing. Uh, and uh, But he did say that they were going to watch it very carefully. Um, so that was in July. Well, the narrative from the Bank of England seems to have changed to a certain degree uh, because here is uh, Hugh Pill from the Bank of England. And he's saying the magnitude and duration of the UK's inflation spike is prov proving greater than expected. So this is a, a problem for them. Uh, we still... Uh, with still strong demand for durable and intermediate goods, but ongoing tensions in international supply chains owing to transport and production dislocations, goods prices have risen at a global level. Uh, much of the recent rise in UK inflation stems from developments, imported goods prices that reflect these dynamics, as well as rises in international commodity prices. Uh, as the pandemic recedes and the level and composition of global demand and supply normalize, these inflationary pressures should subside. So they're still maintaining this narrative that it's all going to be all right in the end. Uh, they're still maintaining the narrative that this is all because of the pandemic, uh, when in fact, uh, it's nothing to do with uh, Coroni. Coroni has had no nothing to do with this at all. It's only to do with government and central bank policy. This is a policy situation It has been engineered. Uh, and the inflation is as a result. Uh, and uh, you've covered that pretty well with the, with, with the, uh, but these guys are on a different planet. They're trying to sell a story to people, which is uh, just like the story of the, the, the pandemic itself is untenable. Yeah. And they're saying when they're, they're saying, oh, the pressure from the economy's opening up, the pressure from the pandemic receding and getting back to normal, the ship, shipping lanes have been full throughout. Mm. Okay. Lorries have been delivering. Everything has been running. The only thing that hasn't really been moving is, is, is citizens, okay, or non-essential workers. Everybody, everything else has been running 
So the economy had, didn't come to a grinding halt uh, and they didn't shut all the shipping lanes and trucks and supply chains down. There's, there's irregularities and problems, yes, due to uh, uh, interruptions, but they're mostly, those interruptions are, like you said, government policies. Yes, but, but aside from that, those supply chain issues existed before the pandemic. They existed for a number of years before the pandemic. The governments, globally, governments were being warned about them for many, many years prior to the pandemic. Uh, and just like Brexit has been used as kind of the whipping boy for many things, pandemic is now being used as the whipping boy for the, to, to, to justify certain situations which have been engineered uh, as a result of government policy. It's an easy scapegoat. Yes. It's an easy scapegoat. But, uh, you know, you might have heard about this su supposed insurrection uh, in the United States on January 6th when the Buffalo man taking selfies inside, everybody kind of posing for photos, and that was an insurrection attempted overthrow of the U.S. government. Don't try not to laugh. And so here, Trump's lawyer instructs uh, Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff of Trump, and other former aides not to comply with the House probe on the January 6th uh, riots ahead of the midnight deadline. So the, the, the Democrats are trying to basically subpoena and uh, keep this investigation, keep this kind of uh, facade going. This is kind of the latest impeachment type uh, effort here, even though it's afterwards. What they're trying to do is hamstring uh, Trump. And so let's look at the reality of this here. The reality is as such, many of the defendants have been charged only with misdemeanors and some low-level offenders. I'm talking about the protesters. Now. Yes. And so they've reached plea deals, which will allow them to av avoid jail time. Total number of Department of Justice indictments for inciting the insurrection or sedition is zero. 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 It's been a year now, and there, of course, we said there would be nothing, and there is nothing, thanks to Glenn Greenwald, who, uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, one of his tweets there, mm. but uh, he's been very good on uh, looking at this issue as well. So, but let's look at some of the reality here. Oh, look at this. FBI finds scant evidence of U.S. Capitol attack was coordinated. Uh, that might, well, at least the FBI informants were coordinated amongst the crowd, but in terms of the real protest, not much happening there. And oh, look at this. That's a bit inconvenient. Among those who marched in the Capitol again, January 6th, an FBI informant. There was more than a few of them, by the way. And that goes on to, under the sort of heading of COINTELPRO. So again, it's, it's going to be really hard for the Department of Justice to uh, investigate FBI. So they're trying to, Democrats are trying to uh, pressure the Department of Justice to basically hunt down, subpoena people who were protesters, who didn't do anything, but they want to bring them in for questioning, potentially maybe indict them for something or whatever. So, so this is effectively going to make political protests are demonstrating uh, a potential a federal offense. Mm. And so this is hugely dangerous. Certainly it's very anti-constitutional, uh, but yet this is what the current administration, the Biden administration is pushing to eliminate its political adversaries. This sounds a lot like Stalinist Russia. Uh, yes. Saying. Okay. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, NATO held their defense minister's meeting and uh, in the sidelines of that or in his press conference for that, Jan Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, said, you know, we've got to continue, we've got to start a dialogue with, with Russia. It's really, really important. Uh, well, the day after he said how important it was to create a dialogue with Russia, uh, the NATO decided that uh, they would expel eight diplomats from the Russian uh, mission at NATO headquarters. Uh, so they were expelled on the 6th of October. 
And the allegation was that they were undeclared Russian intelligence officers. Um, and uh, so uh, this was in response to suspected malign Russian activities, including killings and espionage. Uh, we can confirm that we have withdrawn the accreditation of eight members of the Russian mission at, at NATO who were undeclared Russian intelligence officers. Uh, NATO's policy towards Russia remains consistent. We have strengthened our deterrence and defense in response to Russia's aggressive actions, while at the same time we remain open to meaningful dialogue. Right. So what was Russia's uh, response to this? Well, here's uh, Alexander Grushko. Uh, and he said, yesterday, NATO leaders were still declaring the importance of de-escalation in re relations with Russia. If anyone ever believed in the sincerity of those statements, there are none left today. Um, so that, that's pretty clear. And uh, this uh, schizophrenic attitude to Russia, it, it, how, is any, how is Russia supposed to react to this? It's we just... want your gas, but we think you're an enemy. We want dialogue with you, but we're going to throw you out when you when you you know when yeah. we provide the opportunity for dialogue. Throw your diplomats out. Yes. Yeah. So so according to the general thinking in the West, and this is really U.S. and British led again, uh, is that any Russian official is a member of the GRU intelligence. So it's everyone's a suspected spy because Russians are all spies. They're all KGB, right? Even Vladimir Putin, he's still micromanaging the country. Former mm -hmm. head of the KGB. So you can't get around this. So if the, if they want to use that as an excuse to just uh, to kick out the diplomats, it I I will read that Mike as a prelude to some sort of military aggression. Right. So they'll be doing some provocation or something, and they want to sort of clean house now, get the Russians out, so we can do our thing. We don't have to tell them about it and play nice. Uh, international yeah. relations diplomacy. That's what's going on. Okay, and uh, well, let's uh, put this uh, gent on screen. This is Admiral Sir Tony Radican. Uh, this is your photograph, Patrick, from uh, the Mayflower steps in Mayflower. Yeah, yeah. When they launched the Last, uh, the, the drone, the drone which yeah. didn't succeed. Uh, Mayflower too. That yes. didn't, didn't go anywhere. Um, he was first sea lord at the time, but he's no longer first sea lord. He is now chief of the defence staff. So he's been given a promotion. Uh, so he takes over from Sir Nick Carter uh, on the 30th of November. This is the uh, first time that uh, an admiral of the Royal Navy has become Armed Forces Chief in the UK for 20 years, I believe. Um, but it's not all plain sailing for him, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, because today, and if you remember on, on Wednesday, Brian was talking about Major General Matt Holmes, uh, the head of the Royal Marines, who... Uh, committed suicide. Uh, well, unfortunately, the mail has been digging into this and they discovered that uh, it was possibly because of the actions of Sir Tony Radican, or at least the relationship between the two of them had collapsed to such a degree uh, that in messages left by, uh, by uh, Holmes, it was clear that he was pretty unhappy with Radican. These, these two were colleagues. They were uh, good friends at one point, apparently, but that relationship broke down. So the mail here saying that first, former First Sea Lord Sir Tony and Major General Holmes were previously close friends, but fell out bitterly over changes to the Marines this year. The dispute led to Holmes leaving his post as Commandant General in April, halfway through a three-year important uh, appointment. Sorry, and uh, now the Daily Mail investigation has found he felt deeply let down by the Admiral, uh, who was his boss, as the Marines are part of the Navy. Uh, a directive from Sir Tony's office included a gagging order banning the Marines officer from discussing key issues with colleagues, including the commander of the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, General David Berger. Uh, Major General Holmes was also warned to expect a more limited role in the Marines. 
uh, the order and the tone of Sir Tony's remarks left the father of two, according to the, uh, the mail, deeply upset. He wrote to a friend, I've had a very tough year. I feel beaten down, not listened to, mainly run over by someone with no military judgment. Uh, too much about appearance. I don't trust Radican. He's been awful, awful. Uh, you should see the tone of some of the emails I've had from Radican, basically imposing his authority and keeping me constrained, kept away from ministers, all about his narrative. He doesn't get the Marine Corps, but I know that General Berger recognizes my concerns. Another one that Radican ordered me not to engage with regarding my post. So um, this perhaps perhaps answers one of the questions that Brian was asking on Wednesday, which, which is why uh, uh, Holmes was not, you know, as is normal, when people leave the military, they have job offers basically left at their feet. Uh, and this wasn't the case. And Brian was suggesting perhaps there had been some kind of breakdown in relations. Well, that absolutely seems to have been the case. But it also perhaps gives a little bit of insight into the personality of Admiral Satoni Radican, And I wonder uh, how he will do as head of the armed forces uh, in, as, 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 the, as time progresses. Um, and then just finally, to, to finish off for today, uh, we've been talking about the military uh, and uh, being on the streets to, to carry out, uh, you know, uh, civilian roles. Uh, well, more military on the streets this time in Wales, in, the, in this case, to support the Welsh Ambulance Service. Um, British Armed Forces continue to play a key role across the UK in our fight against COVID-19. We're hugely grateful for their tireless work and commitment. Are they filling uh, gaps to unvaccinated ambulance staff that have been sacked? Or, are, or is COVID just running amok in Wales and like threatening to attack from the hills? Well, in Scotland, uh, when the military were deployed in exactly the same role uh, up there, it was because the Scottish government had chosen to deploy ambulance drivers to uh, run test centres. Oh, uh, and so they were taking frontline ambulance drivers off ambulance duty and putting them into test centres in order to test people. Uh, for give them PCR tests. I don't know if that was what was been going on in, in Wales. Because that's a smart allocation of your human it, resources, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it? Nicola? Yes. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but that's uh, nonetheless the the army going into Wales now to backfill once again. Mm, so very good. Well, you know, at least they're not taking the ambulance drivers and then putting them as to work on the school uh, crosswalks in the morning because that would be really bad. It, it's probably just around they, the corner. They Don't worry. They wouldn't do that, would they? No, of course not. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, apologies again for the technical problems at the beginning of the program. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick, and thank you for joining us. We'll be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, have a great weekend. We we'll hope to see you uh, for the 9-11 Symposium on Sunday. It begins 1 p.m. ukcolumn.org forward slash live. So um, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.